Hello, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Um, today, I am really excited to have Raith Abdul-Ahed, uh, hope I pronounced that right, uh, for his book, A Stranger in Your Own City, um, which uh, I really, really liked. Um, Gaith Abdul-Ahed is an Iraqi journalist born in Baghdad in 1975. He trained as an architect before he was conscripted into Saddam Hussein's army, which he deserted. Soon after U.S.-led coalition forces took control of Baghdad in April 2003, he began writing for The Guardian. He has won numerous awards, including the British Press Awards Foreign Reporter of the Year and two News and Documentary Emmy Awards. Uh, I think you might be the first person on the show with an Emmy, Gate. So um, very cool to talk to you. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm good. Good. Very happy to talk to you. Wonderful. Well, like I mentioned, um, really, um, really enjoyed your book. And, and frankly, I feel like I've actually um, already spent a, a lot of time with you, uh, listening to you, because I flip back and forth between your book and your audio book, which you narrate uh, yourself. Uh, so really well done on that. And I love audiobooks that are narrated. Um, I, I love audiobooks myself. So uh... yeah, well, there's something there's something very special when the the person narrating it is a person who wrote the book. Um, I don't I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who's a writer, and um, he wanted to he wrote a nonfiction book, a history book. And he wanted to narrate his own history book, but his publisher is like, no, 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 you can't do that. We only we only let people doing memoirs, uh, apparently, and this is news to me. Uh, we only let people doing memoirs do that. Um, but you have, a, you have a very nice voice, though, too. So uh, good Thank job you. there. Um, well, yeah. So, you know, let's just kind of dive into your, your book here. A Stranger in Your Own City um, Travels in the Middle East Long War. What made you want to write this book? That's a good question. Uh, well, my publisher, I blame her. Uh, nice. But, you know, I mean, kind of at one point when, when you start seeing a pattern of what's happening in the Middle East, it's not only a fighting in a certain town or certain place. Uh, as you travel around and as you see the same component of a, a certain war, and here I mean sectarianism, uh, traveling from Iraq to Syria to Yemen, back into Iraq, back into Syria, back and forth, you realize uh, these are not, uh, I mean, they are isolated wars in a way because every war is very local, but they are, the people who are fighting these wars will try to claim that these are like one set of global wars stretching, say, from Beirut to Tehran, from uh, north of Iraq to Yemen. I mean, of course, it is a it's a collection of local conflicts, and the reasons are different. But the art, the the how how the combatants try to portray these wars. So that's when the idea came. First, I wanted to write about Arab Yemen and Syria, but that was a huge. Uh, book then was reduced to Iraq and Syria and then Syria was reduced a bit and then I think it's good we we ended up focusing on Iraq and, and on the 20 years since the invasion. So your book starts off actually with your childhood during the the Iraq Iran war and I think people really either don't know people in the west don't know that war even happened or it's something that's very forgotten about but that was just a that was a terribly violent conflict one of the worst conflicts after world war ii that uh, that happened and, and chemical weapons were used and um just really terrible awful fighting and so you know i'm glad that that you went kind of back to your your childhood to, to start this um would, would you consider it a memoir actually would you consider this a memoir See, I mean, I, I, I don't see it as a memoir, but I thought it's very important to tell people, myself included, that what happened in 2003 did not start in 2003. Uh, the American involvement in Iraq that went on for like a decade, two decades earlier. Uh, Iraq's Saddam's mentality, the militarization of the society, how quickly the society fragmented after 2003 into combating, into warring factions. So I thought like it's very important to go back and see, I mean, there is no start to where violence begins. You know, we can go back 20, 30, 50 years, but I thought Iran-Iraq war is very important. 
for a personal reason, because this was my first war when I was five years old, but also I think Iran-Iraq war, as you say, it was a huge war, it's a huge conflict. We in the cities, we were sheltered from that war, but nearly a million Iraqis and Iranians uh, died, injured, uh, the, the kind of the trauma in the Iraqi society. And, and one can argue that the invasion of Kuwait and the first Iraqi-American war of 1991 was a direct result of the Iran-Iraq war. And then, of course, 1991 led to 2003. So I thought this is a very good start, my first memory of a war, and the war that actually led to all the later conflicts. Yeah, well, talk a little bit about your childhood and kind of growing up under the Saddam Hussein regime. You know, I have, have to confess, I had one of the most boring childhoods. In, <laughs> okay. you know, I, I, my, my mother was a teacher. My father had a small business. Uh, we were kind of a, you know, a middle class, lower middle class family, lived in a, a nice part of Baghdad. Uh, and, and, I, and I repeat this in my book that none of my family uh, joined the Ba'ath Party. None of my family was close to the regime and none of my family suffered from the regime. So, so we didn't go to prison. We were not chased by the intelligence service. So it was a very boring and very sheltered childhood. Um, and, and, and that is, you know, I mean, many people in Iraq uh, suffered in one way or another, but also a lot of us, you know, we just had a life. It's, it was an oppressive regime, but it was a functioning regime. It was a dictatorship, but it was, it, it had schools and water sanitation plants and, uh, and whatnot. So, so that was my childhood. I mean, but of course, my childhood and all of the Iraqis who grew up in that time was so dominated by the figure of Saddam. He, I mean, I repeat this line again and again, he was really a godlike figure in our lives. I mean, you know, uh, he played the role of the revolutionary leader with a cap uniform, a cigar, a pistol uh, in, in his you know, waistband, but also, you know, you couldn't whisper his name. You, you, you always talked about him. Uh, Telling a joke was punishable by death or long time in prison. So, you know, you open the school book, you see Saddam's picture. You look at the wall, you see Saddam's picture. You go on the street, you see Saddam's. You open the TV, you see Saddam. So he shaped life. I mean, he said it once, like, I'm Iraq and Iraq is me, which is true. I mean, um, so that is that was, these are the main components of my childhood. The war with Iran, a very sheltered childhood, but also everything dominated by this figure of Saddam. That, you know, just like he was also very boring. He's just like his speeches made no sense. Uh, his cronies controlled life. Uh, so all these kind of contradictions create life in Iraq until 1991. Yeah, and um, something that I thought was interesting. So I've read other memoirs in in history books from um, Iraqi journalists and writers, and what I something I thought that was very interesting was that you hadn't you never left Iraq until later in life, and you actually you open up your book kind of um, these with a conversation with reporters who you know they've only been there for a few years and they'll leave and. I've read other other books where um, the writer spends a lot of time outside of Iraq and then kind of writes about Iraq. And I'm always a little bit like, well, you know, that's I mean, it's it's great that it's a topic that deserves attention. But, you know, those perceptions then get skewed a little bit by by having lived outside of the country. I'm curious, then, at, at what point did you growing up or even later in life? What point were you like, something's not right with with this regime, um, with living under Saddam Hussein? Or maybe you never had that realization in, until much later. But at one point where you're like, this is kind of a, a brutal, uniquely oppressive regime. I mean, I think from day one, from... <laughs> from, I don't know, five or six, at the age of five or six, you realize there is something very, very terribly wrong with this regime. I mean, again, uh, to talk about your, even in your sheltered childhood, you realize the way people whisper about Saddam, the people talk about him, the people disappearing. Um, you know, it was it was a really brutal oppressive regime. <laughs> Sorry. When, in the way that you see the regime Ba'ath Party controlling our lives, and of course, after 1991, our sheltered life uh, basically shatters because under the sanctions, so first the bombing of the 1991 war, 
the massive destruction, uh, we lose electricity, we lose the services, we lose what, whatever makes a state, a, a society functioning. But also the sanctions broke the society, it really crushed it. We turned from a nation of basically middle-class people into a nation of you know hustlers and beggars and there's no employment and everyone's trying to survive and wait one another. And that's when people start leaving Iraq. And, and I, as a, you know, after I graduated as an architect, my dream was to leave Iraq. And I tried, and I tried many times, and I failed, and I lost my money, and I smugglers, and whatnot. So, so it, it is, your whole life is A, shaped by the regime, but shaped in your reaction to that regime, and how to flee the country, how to survive, resist, or, uh, you know, collude and cooperate and, and become a... a you know, a, a, a part of the regime, because the sanctions, which is a very strange thing, the sanctions actually strengthened the regime in the 90s. So while in the 80s, we could see Iraq as a country as a whole, you, you go to your work, you can just close your eyes and forget Saddam. After 1991, you couldn't, he dominated his your life. Uh, the whatever resources that Iraq owned, came only through the regime and his cronies. Uh, the black market flourished and they dominated the black market. So I would say I divide, you know, my childhood in Iraq or my growing up in Iraq into two periods, one until 91 and then 91 to 2003. That's very interesting. I mean, for me, Saddam Hussein is, has always been the bad guy. So I was born in 1992. Uh, so a year after Desert Storm in my whole life, you know, I... I I kind of grew up with, um, you know, either as much as somebody in the West talks about, you know, uh, <laughs> Middle Eastern dictators, but, you know, he's always been the bad guy for me. And I, one of the things I wondered is, is if privately most people opposed Saddam, of course, it was very dangerous to publicly oppose him, but privately were most people, especially around 1991, opposed to him? You know, again, I don't remember ever in my life, before 91 or after 91, ever in my life, meeting a single person who spoke about Saddam as this amazing, great, glorious figure. I mean, you see these people talking about Saddam in this way, but you know that they are part of the Ba'ath Party, they're doing their job, uh, you know, members of the regime, maybe. But I, you know, I've never met a single Arabic who spoke about Saddam as if this great thing happened in Torah, every single one. And, you know, was was so fed up with this guy. I mean, it's just, you know, but I mean, you, you say kind of after 1992, he was the bad guy, but you have to remember in pre-1991, he was the good guy. He was the guy who was, you know, opposing the Iranians. Uh, he was the guy who was, you know, Rumsfeld came to see him in the right. 80s. He was- yeah, America supported. America at at one point, he was the darling of the West, and 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 of course, it is a very short-sighted society. Uh, you know, history tells you that once you support a dictator, you will have to pay the price of that. And I've seen it again and again and again, and we're still seeing it today. So, so again, to go back to the Iraqi society, we whispered about him. We we were scared to talk about him in public, but never. No one said, oh, look, at! did you hear the amazing speech of the leader yesterday on TV? Oh, what do you think about this philosophy of the leader? Yeah, I mean, and again, even his character started changing after 1991. So, so he shed the green uniform, the rhetoric of the socialist revolutionary uh, leader, and became this pious uh, a tribal elder, <clears throat> boring us to death with his speeches and his poems and and he would go dress in different kind of costumes and visit the people and give long boring speeches and he became an architect suddenly interested in building these humongous huge mosques and palaces and and, and, and so so that is the that's Saddam that we lived under well, talk about some of your memories from the the first Gulf War. What was it like? You were living in Baghdad at the time. What what are some of your memories from that? I mean, the bombing, the bombing. It was it shook it shook your spine. I can't describe how heavy the bombing was. And of course, you have the anti aircraft uh, machine guns, you have the rockets, and you have these 
repeated uh, airstrikes, cruise missiles falling on on the city, on civilian houses, on infrastructure. Our house was somewhere in, in kind of to the west of this, to the south of the city, actually. And there was a beautiful old bridge next to our house built in the 50s that was destroyed. Hit. There was a, a uh, post office right in front of our building that was hit also. And, and of course, the presidential compound, which was on the other side of the river. I mean, imagine your city being carpet bombing, you know, I mean, they call it, uh, they call it smart bombing. For us sitting underneath these bombs, it wasn't smart at all. It was just kind of like this screeching sound of cruise missiles falling on the city, uh, F-16s or whatever, the jet fighters flying over the city. So that was, and that went on for 40 days. Uh, and of course, you know, the actual war, on the ground lasted for three days or four days. And, and it was the folly of all follies, you know. If, if the Iran-Iraq war was a, was a meaningless war in which one million people died for no obvious reason, the 1991, from military perspective, that was the, the biggest disaster in the history of disasters. I mean, yes, Saddam had, I don't know, 7,000 old Soviet tanks. It was nothing compared to the American. And that, that show of force basically What's the purpose of the war? I think. Yeah, and um, you know, I I I got the feeling with reading your book. So the first Gulf War was, we the Iraq was not invaded more or less um, like it was in two thousand three, and um, yeah, I, I got the feeling reading your book that maybe Saddam after that because he kind of held off all of the outside forces or you know held off uh maybe he felt a little emboldened i don't know if is the right way to put it but it's kind of this moment where he's like oh you know i took on the rest of the world and, and stuff like that but how did normal people feel about how the the first gulf war how that concluded in iraq so two points here the first point is is you know these kind of movements and regimes they they kind of twist the narrative and and the uh, the ultimate defeat becomes a victory because we're still standing, you know? Look, we've been bombed, we, we've, our country has been reduced into rubble, but I'm still here, so that means I'm victorious. I am victorious in my resistance to the Americans. So that's how he shifted the narrative and it was all about standing up to the West and how he defeated the Americans by standing up to them. The second thing, it was a general sense of defeat, not amongst only the Iraqi people, especially, but amongst the military, the generals, the army officers, they were so demoralized after 1991, because again, 70s, I mean, the military is one of the main components of the Iraqi state, I would say, from 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 its inception in the 20s and the 50s. And since the 50s, of course, it was only the military junta ruling Iraq, one military general until the other. So come Saddam, Saddam as the civilian who'd never served in the military, he became the leader of the war against Iran. And of course that led to major military disasters. After 1991, there was so much anger within the military because the military saw its hardware totally wiped out. So, so the officers themselves reduced into taxi drivers and hustlers like the rest of us. And, and this is when you see so much anger against him. And there were like multiple coup attempts from within the military, from if we use the sectarian terminology that was later enforced in Iraq, from within the, yeah, the Sunni officer cadre that even people within his own hometown tried to topple him. And, uh, so there was so much anger within the military against Saddam after 1991. The rest of the population were just crushed by, you know, by the UN sanctions. Yeah, and I was about to say, well, this is, of course, like the the sanctions come shortly after um, the the first Gulf War. So Iraq, as a whole, is really suffering. Um, talk about a little bit about what you were doing, kind of during the 90s, and then leading up to when you were. Uh, conscripted into Saddam's army. So, you know, as you said in the introduction, I, I studied architecture. I loved architecture. I loved doodling. So I thought architecture is the best field can for I, that. Can I ask you real quick? Sorry to interrupt you. Did you do the drawings in the book? I did. Yeah. Oh, that's, see, I was so, because I, I, was, I was doing the audio book. I was like, oh, I'm missing, you know, I'm missing these illustrations. Uh, so everybody out there, um, a bonus you get with the paper copy is a uh, case. 
illustrations that are very well done. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Continue, please. So I studied architecture and graduated uh, in the late 90s as an architect. And uh, I was, you know, as every male Iraqi, you had to do your military service, compulsory military service. And I went there and I saw the conditions of the soldiers and I saw how they are treated basically like, you know, like slaves kind of being pushed around by these kind of NCOs and, and the humiliation. And I just turned around and went back home. I think I wore a military uniform half a day or, or something, but I, I never served. Uh, and it's not only me. I mean, in the 90s, desertion was, was really, you know, it was really high because of the conditions, because of the poverty, because of the regime was weaker. I have to say something important that had I deserted in the 80s, I wouldn't have lasted more than a week or a month. But because after the 90s, the regime was weak, the security forces were weakened, corrupt. And that's how I could uh, fake ID cards, you know, do different kind of ways to dodge uh, these kind of checkpoints in the streets were designated for capturing. So what, uh, what year military. is this that you, that you so, desert? So kind of from 1998 okay. uh, and until uh, 2003. And it's that easy. You just, you, you went, you put on a uniform and you're like, oh, this isn't, this, I don't want to be here. And yep. you just left. I just left again. I, I could do it because um, it's because an architect, I had like a, 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 a engineering a member of like an, an ID card that says I'm an engineer. So that allowed me to pass through checkpoints. Uh, I mean, of course I was trapped in the country. I couldn't leave, couldn't get a passport because you can't get any of the papers without. Uh, I moved to my residence. I would change my residence every couple of weeks, couple of months, moved from one place to another. And, and I survived again because the weakness within the security forces, not because I was, it was risky. Now I'm thinking of it, but I think it's just like, it was very risky. So what did people, uh, what did people think when you, I, was it pretty common for people to desert? Uh, what did your family say when you come back, when you came back home after just being in the army, were they scared for you or, or was it so common? I mean, one of the really... things I had, I had to leave the house because, you know, because that's the first place where they come look for you. In, back into your house with your family. So I had to move out of the house, live different places. Um, and you know, at that time, the, issue, the punishment for desertion was uh, uh, you know, cutting off one ear and being branded a coward on your forehead. And uh, uh, so yes. Well, so let's, let's talk about the American invasion, um, 2003. So you've, you've managed to stay out of the army uh up until the the invasion um but then you know talk about the military situation kind of leading right up to it in baghdad and then what happens to you during the invasion so by 2002 uh kind of like the the war drums were so loud you could hear them even in baghdad even in the isolation uh, of baghdad and and no one wanted a war and this is another conversation we've had with friends. I don't remember anyone saying, yes, it's great. Let's have another war. Let's be bombed again by the Americans. But no one wanted to see Saddam. And, and again, this whole question, the, the very simplistic question, Saddam or America, was a very, you know, I think it's a very kind of linear, simplistic paradigm in which we have to choose between a mad dictator or a foreign invasion. Anyhow, no one asked us our opinion, but then as the war is approaching, we Iraqis know very well how to survive a war. So we started, you know, stockpiling. I myself started buying tuna, rice, cooking oil, gasoline for the lamps. And because you know what will happen when the war starts. The first thing you lose is the electricity, the water, and uh, and then the war the war started and the bombing on the city started and buildings started you know being destroyed the command of the air force was very close to the place where I was living was bombed different targets around the city was bombed uh, stupidly I would cycle throughout the streets of Baghdad with a with a small camera and Minolta that a friend had lent me and take pictures of destroyed buildings thinking that I want to document this, the architecture of the city, the destruction of the city. 
very stupid. I was arrested once, uh, went back home, waited, and then one day a neighbor knocks at my door and says, the Americans are here. And I'm kind of trying to trace their movements on a map or listening to the radio. And I say, yes, they're 100 kilometers south of Baghdad. No, no, they're here downstairs. And you go downstairs and you see this. It's like a movie. That day plays in my head like a movie. You see these, you know, American Marines, uh, amphibious armored vehicles, soldiers pointing their guns. It's things you see in the movie. And then it's happening right in front of your, your door. And, uh, and then I followed that kind of Marine convoy. They reached the square where all the Germans were staying. And of course, the famous statue that was toppled and the rest is history. Yeah. And that's it's so interesting to read your perspectives of the, the invasion. So like I said, I was born in 1992. I was 10 years old when when we when America invaded Iraq. And my memory is just like watching, I think my parents had CNN on and you know, the shock and awe campaign where bombs were dropping on Baghdad and these big explosions. And I I don't I think that's about it. Um we were at war, but we had been at war with, you know, we had been in Afghanistan. And so it almost seemed like a, it was, of course, you know, I was 10. So looking back, perhaps other people were um, maybe not more worried about it, but more invested in what was going on in Iraq. But I don't, I remember it just like being kind of almost like a non-event. Um, um, and, you know, at the time, everybody was, we're just two years past 9-11 and so everyone's like, oh, yeah, this will probably be over in like a, a day or two. And, you know, the Iraqis will will realize the Americans were our liberators who have come to to take away their their dictator. And, um, you know, so it's 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 very interesting to read your perspective on the ground and to hear this kind of cinematic um, event, this, these these cinematic events taking place right in front of your own eyes. Of course, um, you know, it's not over in a couple of days. And um, you write a little bit about how Iraqis, you may be at the very beginning are thinking, okay, there might, there, the Americans could change things for the better, correct? Absolutely. I mean, again, no one asked the Iraqis their opinion, but once Saddam was toppled, there was a, a kind of a collective sigh of relief that lasted probably couple of hours because the everyone was happy to see the end of Saddam and I say even in Saddam's hometown even in even within the military everyone was very happy to see the end of Saddam and of course there was this kind of perception oh this is the greatest nation in the world look at their machines look at their guns look at their tanks of course everything will be fixed within weeks and Iraq will turn into maybe Dubai, and of course, none of that happened. None of that happened for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, people blame the Americans who had no planning for the day after. Uh, the, the kind of the criminal negligence, I would say, of, of, of the people who planned the war, who executed the war. And, and of course, they managed to alienate those Iraqis within I would say days, weeks. And the third element, which is I, I now totally believe in, there was no scenario in which a, a foreign invasion comes to invade a country after bombing it you know, multiple times. Uh, there is such a big gap. Not only there's a gap in, in language and in perspective and what, whatever you want to call it, but there's also so much grief in Iraq and so much grief in the States. And, and, and I mean, most of the soldiers I talked to after 2003, uh, you know, it, it's 9-11 is there. And, and you try to kind of say, but hold on, we are not 9-11, we're Iraq, we had nothing to do with, with, with Al-Qaeda, with the jihadists and all these things. But that was part of, you know, it was the motive. Personally, there in the background, consciously, unconsciously, 9-11 was very present in, in anything that happened in Iraq uh, 2003 and after. But, but that was a very, very wrong misconception. And of course, again, I say criminal negligence because an American soldier standing in the middle of the street, in the middle of the heat, they don't know what to do. They don't speak the language. No one told them what to do. Sometimes they try to, you know, to 
clear gridlocks. Sometimes they just drive the tanks in the middle of the street. It was utter chaos. It was utter chaos. And in that chaos, and that moment of chaos, uh, and the lack of security, everything that happened after all the civil wars in Iraq and Syria kind of had the spark from that chaos because suddenly the borders are open. And everyone was a grievance against the Americans, jihadis, Iranians, you name them, flooded into Iraq, because that's the place where you can fight the Americans. Before you had to go bomb a USS call in the middle of the ocean to, from their perspective, to fight American soldiers, to kill American soldiers. Now you can just do it in the streets of Baghdad. And, and the lack of security led to the looting of all the military uh, depots and, and, uh, and, you know, military camps, you, you push all the Iraqi army officers who wanted to play a role in the post-Saddam, uh, whatever regime, they were all alienated, you know, pushed into a corner and condemned collectively as, you know, collaborators of the regime. So, so all these conditions created the mess that happened later. And of course, from an Iranian perspective, uh, why do we wait for the Americans to topple Saddam and then come after us? No, we will make sure that the Americans are defeated in Iraq. So, so you have all these different elements fighting the Americans on Iraqi soil. So after the invasion happens, how long until people realize, oh, this isn't this isn't working? It's it's not going to work. I would say within days, within weeks. Uh, with the months, it's just kind of this, this, this kind of realization. I mean, I write in the book about this guy who, sitting in this very poor neighborhood, and says, "Look, my son, look at this. This is America. America is so big. They will fix electricity, the water, the... and then kind of very soon, people realize not only the Americans had no plan for the day, but they were messing things up. They were kind of, you know, very soon, kind of." Incidents start take place, civilians getting killed, civilians getting detained. And of course, like every army, every invading army, their kind of sense of their own security is so huge. It's bigger than anything else. And for their for the security of that invading army, you'll see them kind of doing parameters. A soldier gets shot out, a whole village would be rounded up and detained. So any I would say by the summer, even before the summer, kind of a, a sense of not only this is a huge uh, mess, the absence of other family unfriendly words, but, uh, but this is, you know, the, the kind of this whole, again, remember there is a legacy of America and Iraq. There is all the regime talk and propaganda about the Americans. So suddenly the Iraq is saying, oh, this can't be, America cannot not make a plan. So this must have been a grand scheme to destroy Iraq forever. It is all a conspiracy theory. And, and from that day on, it's all downhill. To the extent that 20 years later, even the people who actually benefited from the American invasion, the people who actually came on the back of American tanks to rule Iraq are now you know, criticizing America and kind of denouncing this whole war. So it was a disaster on any strategic, uh, you know, level. It was a, it was a great, great, great disaster. Yeah. And so then by very shortly after, by the summer, um, not only are the Americans, you know, bungling this but they're actually the enemy because um of you mentioned a little bit about the um you know there's no security um you know the iranians are coming in the jihadis are coming in all of these terrible you know forces that have been somewhat suppressed under saddam are, are coming in and then it becomes pretty clear that the americans aren't they're just not prepared to handle it um is there is there a point where Maybe this is maybe you had just answered this, but is there a point where most people were like, not not only are the Americans not helping, but they're actually they're the reason for all this destruction? Well, absolutely. I mean, once uh, once as you know, so you have a resistance of the Americans 
emerges, but then that resistance quickly turns into sectarian jihadi religious rhetoric. And that sectarian rhetoric quickly crosses the line. So from attacking the Americans to killing the soldiers, the Iraqi soldiers working with the Americans, to killing to killing any Iraqi soldiers because to is a Shia, to killing all the Shia. And, and that line went step by step very quickly. And then suddenly it's not only about, oh, the Americans are doing a mess in Iraq. The Americans are causing a civil war, causing a sectarian civil war. And that sense of, uh, you know, who the Americans were dealing with in terms of Iraqis, a group of Iraqi exiles who are living in Tehran, London, different places, empowering them, who all came with their sectarian agendas, and and then and then the civil war, and then suddenly Iraqis uh, stop looking at the Americans as kind of this nuisance or, or kind of like something uh, you know annoying in the street. They become like this cause of so much uh, chaos in Iraq, and and once the civilians start seeing the brunt of this sectarian civil war. Everyone forgets the, the American soldiers. They, they, their presence is, is meaningless there in the streets. It, the, it is the sectarian war. It is the jihadis blowing uh, car bombs. It's the militias kidnapping civilians. Uh, and that is where, so it's almost, it becomes a surreal, a, a, a parallel cities. In one city, there is a civil war. In another city, there is an American occupation. And that is happening underneath that, overlapping sometimes, uh, but often two different universes. Yeah, well, let's talk about the um, the sectarian wars, the first civil war and the, uh, you actually, you write about two civil wars, but the first civil war, the sectarian war, um, talk a little bit about you, um, what what you're seeing during this time period. First, like what are kind of some of like the main events, so to speak, um, with the sectarian war? What what starts? Um, what's kind of the first sign that a civil war is breaking out for you? And then what are you kind of seeing and, and feeling on the ground? So the first sign of a civil war is not when people start shooting at each other from across barricades. The first sign of a civil war, when the society is so polarized and so split, when the rhetoric of, of I wouldn't even dignify them by calling them politicians, but all the, the, the party bosses that came uh, after the American invasion, the opposition exile, they had a very clear sectarian way of looking into Iraq. I don't wanna say that Iraq is not, is, you know, sects exist in Iraq, Kurds, Arabs, Sunnis, Shia, they all existed in Iraq. And of course, there are differences and conflicts throughout histories, but the Iraqi society on the eve of the 2003 invasion was mostly uh, a political, uh, sectarian identities existed as a cultural identities. Yes, people did suffer from the regime's policies, but may sound very strange, but the regime was not sectarian in a way. The regime was built to preserve the power of Saddam and his clan and his village, be it whatever they are. Uh, so he did not oppress the Shia because they're Shia and tolerated this. He would oppress anyone who happened to oppose the regime. Digressing. To go back to the main point, a suddenly a sectarian rhetoric is implemented in Iraq. And suddenly the Americans who had no clue and they're only talking to those Iraqi exiles start implementing a new political system in Iraq based on something we call the muhasasa, which is the allocation of state resources to different groups, to different parties, to different sects, uh, ostensibly to, to stop one sect or group of people dominating. But what that creates, it splits the Iraqi state institution into little fiefdoms. And these fiefdoms are milked by, by these political parties, by these militias, by these groups, up until today, creating a massive sense of corruption. That's one. But the other thing that was created by this Mohassasa system is it enables a sectarian rhetoric in the society. And as I said, you start, you know, the jihadis first start killing collaborators, quote unquote, then they start killing uh, Shia because they are collaborators, and then they start killing any Shia because they are presumed to be quote unquote collaborators. And, and vice versa, the Shia militia start kidnapping and killing uh, Sunni men accused of terrorism. And again, this is happening under the noses of the Americans. I mean, one of the main uh, death squads created to hunt 
quote unquote uh, Sunni terrorists was these commandos units. And these commandos units were working sometimes in tandem with the Americans, but they had their own agenda because many of them you know, grew, in, grew up in exile, were trained in Iran. So, so these things all happened in the same time. Um, there is a surge, uh, and everyone talks about the surge as as kind of the how the war the, the insurgency was defeated. I would say the insurgency was defeated because the Iraqi insurgents, the Sunni insurgents, realized that they cannot fight two enemies at the same time: the Americans and the Shia militias on two sides. So they decide to go into a Farsian deal and hand the foreign jihadis to the Americans for the promise that the Americans would reintegrate them into the security forces, you know, protect them from the from the wrath of the Shia militias. Uh, the first civil war is ended rather than having a peace process integrate all those men into the new Iraqi security forces. No, we get Nur al-Maliki, the prime minister, who was the strong man, who was preferred by both the Americans and the Iranians. And Maliki re-implement the same sectarian policies that actually created the first civil war, goes after the Sunnis. And this is now we're moving to 2010, 2011, Arab Spring is happening. Sectarianism is already planted into the Syrian uprising, Syrian civil war. The jihadis who are defeated in Iraq migrate into Syria, reconstruct their organizations in the desert region, come back into Iraq and uh, take advantage of the very charged sectarian atmosphere in Baghdad, and then which leads eventually to the fall of Muslim in 2014. Yeah, and you write about something I, I found very interesting is life has changed so much for you and for everybody just in moving around the city. So now all of a sudden, instead of you being able to like drive into a neighborhood, you know, if, if you're a Sunni and somebody else is a Shia, going to visit a friend in their Shia neighborhood all of a sudden becomes like a, a life and death. Um, um, you you write about, there's like one, I think it was a Shia militia group that sees a car drive by twice and they, they don't, they've never seen it before. And then they order out this, this militia group orders the occupants out at gunpoint and, um, you know, takes them away for questioning and then other people are like, oh, I think I saw somebody dressed in black in the passenger seat or, you know, oh, I think I saw, you know, some some banners or some slogans or something. Um, talk a little bit just about how these kind of daily, you know, everyday life uh, things that you used to be able to do. Talk about how that's changing and, and how violent things are becoming. So this is where the title Stranger in Your Own City comes, because within two years, uh, I, someone who grew up in this city, who lived in the city all my life, become actually a stranger. I can't move freely in my own city. You know, as you say, uh, the city that had no sectarian boundaries suddenly acquire a actual boundaries and and act like, like you have a map and you say this neighborhood is Sunni, this neighborhood is Shia, oh no, this neighborhood is the Shia have been expelled from it. And the militia control this thing. And and you don't know which militia controls which road because, and that becomes a danger because you, know, you, you start carrying two sets of ID cards or you travel with two people, a Sunni and a Shia to use them to to vouch for you, whatever you go. And, and it's very quickly, uh, you, know, you know, this kind of xenophobic mentality of civil wars, you know. Oh, as you say, this guy's dressed in black, he must be a Shia. This guy's, you know, has his beard, he must be a Sunni. The length of your beard, the, the accent, all these tiny little identifiers become really, really dangerous in the context of a civil war. Yeah, and you mentioned um, so Nouri al Maliki becomes um, he he becomes prime minister, and the first civil war, if you want to call it, ended. And um, talk about his his regime or you know his administration, and then how things change um, for for Iraq, but for you personally too. And I guess you know something so that I forgot to mention too. You've become a reporter by this time. Uh, so you're you're on the ground um, seeing all these events and, and writing about these events. You're not an architect anymore, just to be clear for the uh, the audience out there. The, the Nur al-Maliki, as you call it, regime, it's a very good description, uh, was built on 
you know, it's it's a product of this muhasasa system that we talk about, the sectarian system that was created in Iraq. Uh, but also it's a regime built on corruption. So, so he wanted to build this kind of client patronage networks and to build these things, he used state resources uh, that are at his disposal. So not only he uh, built the state of the so-called strong man and he pursued policies very similar to that of Saddam, but he also uh, allowed the creation of one of the most corrupt states in the world. And it's not only Nur al-Maliki, of course. I mean, the whole state, everyone was playing the same game. But the, the kind of the direct result is... For example, the military and the security forces becomes this, uh, you know, a way of like like tax farms in the old age. So a military officer buys his position and to become, let's say, commander of such and such brigade uh, by bribing a member of parliament, a politician, a minister of defense. And, and then he uses his position to siphon as much as money as possible. So we we have this phenomenon of the ghost soldiers in which a unit on the paper has a 1,000 soldiers, but in reality, there are only 200. And the rest of the 800, their salaries are siphoned uh, by the commanding officers. And, and this is why ISIS managed to defeat all these units with you know tens of thousands of soldiers on paper. In reality, there was scattered smaller outposts here and there. That that you know uh, corruption in the security forces was the direct result of Nur al-Maliki's politics and the way his authoritarian way of, of dealing with the country. Um, and, and still going on, by the way. I mean, I mean, he may be not a prime minister anymore, but he's a very strong man, and he still, uh, if not him, people under him still dominates parts of their country and society. Before we kind of get to to ISIS and the Second Civil War, and and I've got questions for you about what your predictions kind of for the future of your country are. Before we get to that, I'm just curious for you personally, what's going on for you at this time? So. So, I mean, very soon you have to leave where, you know, you have to live in a compound, in a protected hotel, in a, in a you know, live behind fences and barbed wire like the rest of the journey. It doesn't matter if you're a foreigner or Iraqi, everyone is targeted by kidnapping and killing. And then, um, you know, I start dividing my time uh, between Beirut and Baghdad, Istanbul and Baghdad, because going to Baghdad becomes so dangerous. Um, and, and so personally, again, I mean, everything I describe in the book is the things that I saw as a reporter, which is like a tiny, tiny percentage of what a, a average Iraqi was going through every single day. Because as we talk about these clashes and car bombs and kidnapping, people had to go to school, people had to go out shopping, people had to, I don't know, visit friends. And all these things were happening within the within the realm of a, of a civil sectarian civil war so so it was you know crazy the, the easy description to it was uh, living in baghdad in these days so uh let's get to the islamic state then um you know obviously you know they're terrifying um but just talk about talk about how how baghdadis and iraqis talk talk about the second civil war that you call talk about how that started with the Islamic state and how, how normal people kind of felt about the events that were going on in Iraq. There was a sense of disbelief when, when Muslim fell, I mean, there's a difference between insurgents reappearing, say in the countryside, in farmlands, uh, outside Baghdad. Would you but... say, sorry to interrupt. Would you say that with Mosul falling, was that the first, time that most Iraqis were like, holy cow, like there's, there is now like these terrible, these jihadis pouring into the country. Was that kind of the first instance people are like, they've invaded our country or did people know about them before Mosul fell? So before Mosul fell, there's all this Sunni agitation and, and these were peaceful demonstrations. At the e, at kind of inspired by the Arab Spring, but of course, Nur al-Maliki treated them as a conspiration, you know, a conspiracy of the jihadis and uh, and the Ba'athis. Uh, they were not, 
Uh, and so he oppressed them as, as a reaction, there was more anger in the street. In that anger, in that vacuum, uh, the jihadis infiltrated these demonstrations. And, and first thing, you see uh, cities like uh, uh, Ramadi and Fallujah falling, but no one knew who was actually there. Uh, some people called them tribal, you know, rebels. Some people called them, uh, you know, different kind of jihadis. Uh, but it was actually the fall of Mosul. That was the moment, the ultimate moment when, because it's not only Mosul fell, within three days, you know, Mosul fell, Tikrit fell, and the jihadis were actually in Taji, which is kind of the outskirts of Baghdad. And there was a suddenly a sense of a catastrophe going to happen, because what if these ISIS jihadis kind of come and take over Baghdad, can you imagine the massacres? What if they destroyed the shrine, the Shia shrines in, Shah, in Samarra again, or reach Karbala or Najaf? There was an existential threat. And this is when you see tens of thousands of young Shia men and Sunnis in different parts of the country who volunteered to fight ISIS. Um, that's when the Iranians become very involved in the fighting. And that's when the Americans will also get very involved in the fighting. And then within weeks after that, uh, a kind of the push starts and the push to start to liberate these towns and villages, which takes, of course, nearly three years, more than three years until it culminates with the Battle of Mosul and the final defeat of ISIS in Iraq. But that process was a very, very long process. I mean, I would argue that every single meter was fought for multiple times. People died, people liberated the land, lost the land, liberated. It, it, it was a huge mess. And that war exposed how corrupt the Iraqi security forces were and how, what, what Maliki's regime had created and the mess that it had created. But of course, the ultimate defeat of ISIS only came when the Sunnis realized that ISIS was a, you know, because in the beginning, ISIS portrayed itself as coming to Mosul, for example, to liberate the people of Mosul from the sectarian Shia politics of Muriel Maliki. And, and people were, at the beginning, happy to see the end of the presence of Iraqi security forces because of the abuse of Iraqi security forces. But within weeks, it was the Sunnis, the people of Mosul themselves, who started seeing the, the wrath of ISIS, the, the policies of ISIS. And that's the moment when I would say it was the end of the Iraqi sectarian politics of 2003 happened. ISIS, because they're so brutal and so horrible, they kind of managed to create a kind of a sense of, uh, I don't know, coexistence, patriotism, you name it, what you know, a, a unified purpose between the Sunnis and the Shia to defeat this kind of organization. In, in what year is does Mosul fall? fall? Mosul fell in June 2014, and the battle to liberate it happened in the end of 2016 and went on throughout 2017. And I remember um, I was I was working at like a university. It was a the center for the study of the Middle East at Indiana University, and um, I remember reading a lot about. And I think this might have been before isis but baghdad at this time i remember there was just like a ton there was a ton of violence going on in baghdad already um i could be misremembering this but i'm pretty sure this was the case at the end of 2013 beginning of 2014 i wonder how is it first of all before i go on with my question is that correct am i am i misremembering the the situation in baghdad in 2013 no no there was like a series of car bombs like horrifying car bombs yeah in the city um, I wonder with just kind of how Baghdadis felt at the time. So you've got you've you this horrible streak of violence that's been taking place, corrupt politicians, ISIS, you know, knocking on the doors of Baghdad. What's just kind of like your if you went down to the coffee shop in 2014 and were talking to Baghdadis about how they felt about their city and their life. What would those conversations be like? So it's funny you talk about a coffee shop because I had a small coffee shop that I would frequent since the 90s. It's not even a coffee shop. It's two metal benches under a tree and a guy making tea. It's not even coffee. And, and that place was bombed three times. 
you know, car bomb, suicide bomb, and every time it's bombed and people die, you, I tell myself, it can't be bombed again. So I go back there, it's safe now, and then it's bombed again, and it's bombed again. Uh, a sense of fear, a sense of, uh, you know, uh, existential fear. Uh, thousands of Iraqis, young men, had volunteered to the front, so not only in the security services and these kind of paramilitary units that were fighting against ISIS, you know, Iran-aligned, and, and a lot of them were dying. They were cannon folders. They were just young kids sent to the front. And, and, and their images of these young ch children, many of them, kind of wearing these green bandanas, sitting in the back of trucks, military trucks, and being shipped to the front to end up as cannon folders, it really replayed the images of the Iran-Iraq war. And of course, the Iraqi media, state media, tried to reclaim uh, uh, imagery from the 1980s war against Iran, but played in a different way, use it in the fight against ISIS to reclaim this image of the victorious army that will liberate the land. Uh, it was a very painful war. I mean, again, remember 2014-15 coincided with the massive migration to Europe because as, as a direct result to, to ISIS in Iraq and Syria and, and it, it, the, re, the whole region was was in an in upheaval, uh, military after military after military campaign, and of course, what you hear on TV is one thing. It's pure propaganda. It's I don't know. It's just like this whole lies of telling the people, oh, we'll liberate Mosul in two weeks. Oh, we'll liberate Mosul, and and it's only later when I started talking to the soldiers, kind of collecting their memories, you realize. Oh my God, they've been going through like serious, serious stuff. I mean, for example, there is a refinery in Beji. We were told that, you know, ISIS took over the refinery and then Iraqi special forces retook the refinery and then they were besieged inside. And they were besieged for like, I don't know, a couple of months. And, and, and the lines were so tight around them that, you know, airdrops couldn't reach them, food, ammunitions. And then we are told that the refinery was liberated and the soldiers kind of came out victorious. And then only when I talked to the soldiers again, I realized that there was another siege that no one knew about in Baghdad because these, these are the memories of soldiers that are not shared, are not told. Uh, so what I remember from this fight against ISIS, the level of propaganda. Oh, I mean, we talk about ISIS propaganda videos and sleep videos, but the propaganda on the other side was equally... Uh, manipulative, filled with disinformation. I wonder um, if, you know, obviously you grew up during the Saddam Hussein regime. Um, I wonder just kind of like comparing the propaganda to um, when Saddam Hussein was in power. Like, well, how do you how do you compare? And con oh, we've got a dog uh, joining us. Uh, <laughs> or is that a cat? A cat. Oh, I thought it was a dog. Um, well, welcome to your, what's your cat's name? It is a, uh, Kishmish. Oh, welcome Kishmish. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> compare and contrast the uh, uh, the kind of propaganda that you grew up with to what you're seeing on the TVs now. You know, the propaganda, it, it's a, in a way, it's a direct result of, of Saddam's propaganda. So uh, it's, it's kind of like they, they, they borrowed the same imagery, they borrowed the same songs, the same pictures. And of course, rather than do actual, um, you know, uh, you know, tell tell the people what's going on. You know, they had to create this religiously infused propaganda. This um, it, it's it it what? was one of the sorry one of the things that I realized about the Iran Iraq war in the eighties. The Iranians had a better documentation of of the war from their side. So so they have these ten eight volumes of pictures. Uh, they call them Jengi Muqaddas, the Holy War. And they actually have war photography, decent war photography. And they send people to the front, photographers to the front, and they document the, the suffering, the death, because everything for them was a holy war. And, you know, and they were not shy of, of you know, the martyrs and the injured people. It's all a suffering of a nation. In Iraq, we had a different model. So in Iraq, we had a different model, which is a kind of almost a, a Soviet model in which all the pictures you see from the front are very curated. They're all fake, reconstructed. You don't know what was going on the front from the news. You know it from the soldiers who come back 
their homes from the front, they tell you, oh, yeah, actually, we lost this battle, we won this battle. That same psyche is still prevailing in Iraq up until today. You know, you're not allowed to show injured soldiers. You're not allowed to show kind of dead soldiers. Uh, everything is a lie. Um, you know, the Iraqi army, the most victorious army in the world, although it's been defeated again and again and again. And, and that is the mentality, the, pro, the military propaganda mentality that rules Iraq. It's still the same continuous, because one of the things that as the civil wars settled in Iraq and as the Americans left and as Iraq was trying to just kind of come out of the rubble, they looked back into the history and they said that the only model of governance, they know, is the model of Saddam. And they went back to that model. So this is why in Iraq today, we have one of these most mutant states in the world. It is a democracy on paper. It has a, a, a kind of a liberal, freedom-loving constitution. And yet it's governed by this archaic mentality based on bureaucracy, security mentality, and corruption. Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of the where you see the future of Iraq going. Um, obviously, ISIS has more or less been defeated, um, but there's still a lot of problems uh, in, in Iraq. Um, talk a little bit about where you see things going. The ultimate problem in Iraq at the moment is corruption. And that corruption, if it's not dealt with, will lead to another upheaval, a kind of a social upheaval. We're talking about a country where you know, $120 billion worth of oil money per year. And yet parts of Iraq and Baghdad are on par with some of the poorest nations in the world. And that is happening because of corruption. And that corruption uh, led in 1919 to the street violence, street demonstrations, the uprising, youth uprising of 1919. And, and that was crushed and all uprisings failed, but that was a, you know, a benchmark in Iraqi history of the last 20 years. It's kind of a post-sectarian politics. But but the anger is still there. The frustration is still there. The, the politicians, again, I don't want to dignify them by calling them politicians, the party bosses, the militia commanders, the religious parties, they, they are still siphoning the wealth of the nation. While Iraq is growing very fast, 42 million, doubling in, in population in 20 years, it's facing serious clim climate ch challenges. Uh, the combination between corruption and that will lead to another social upheaval if it's not dealt with. How do you think the next generation of Iraqis, uh, the Iraqi youth, how do they feel about their government and, and what do you think they want from their government? You know, one of the biggest disasters of this war is that words like democracy has been soiled in the eyes of Iraqis. I mean, you say parliament and they think of corruptions and deals and commissions. And, and the sad thing, you know, remember when you asked me, how did the Iraqis feel growing up under Saddam? What did they think of Saddam? We thought about him as a mad dictator. Ask Iraqis now, how do they think of Saddam? As a, a kind of a portion of the Iraqis, you know, across the sectarian line would say, Oh, he was a, he was a dictator, but at least he ruled the country properly. Oh, at least he did so and so. At least we had running water and electricity. That is the problem with with the with the last twenty years. It managed. It was so bad the last twenty years. It managed to exonerate Saddam, or at least allow certain people to say, "Oh, it wasn't so bad under Saddam." This is what the disaster was. So, do because, you think? You know, Go ahead. <laughs> Because I, again, I mean, I love history like you do because, and I think history is very important to, because if we forget the history, we don't remember the history, we will tend to repeat the same mistakes or turn someone like Saddam into a, uh, a glorious leader, leader again. I was, you know, I was just about to ask you something similar. Um, do you think that that the, the road has been paved to let another dictator um, take power in Iraq? It's very difficult for another dictator. I mean, everyone in Iraq is obsessed with this whole idea of a military coup. Every single army officer I talk to will kind of sit there, relax, push back the chair and say, if only they give me power for six months, I will change the whole country. And, and of course, that is a, a, a delusion at best. Uh, but also it's very difficult to have a, a military dictatorship in Iraq because the, the security forces, the military power is so diffused 
but not a single unit. I mean, look, it is there. It, I mean, militia commanders, uh, there's so much uh, mistrust between the, you know, the paramilitary units, the special forces units, the Iraqi army units, the security forces unit. There's so much discord. Everyone says the political system as it is, is going to fail. Uh, but to have a military dictatorship is very difficult. And is there anything you're optimistic about? Uh, I know we've been talking a lot about the things that are wrong, but what do you what are you hopeful for for Iraq's future? I'm hopeful for the new generation. I mean, this is where the only hope exists because it's a post-sectarian uh, generation. It's a generation that has realized the sectarian rhetoric of of the ruling politicians. Uh, it's not doing anything. So that's where my hope lies. Wonderful. Well, uh, Kate, this has been a, a wonderful interview and, you know, really thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for your, your time. Um, where, if, if people want to, um, follow you or, you know, find you, are you on social media? How can, how can people stay in touch with what you're working on? Um, I am on social media. I'm at Raith.abdul.ahad on Twitter and, uh, and of course in the Guardian and the Land Review books, you can see a lot of my eyes. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, Gaith Abdullahid, a stranger in your own city. Um, go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. Uh, a really a story worth reading. And I'm so glad that uh, you're able to join me here, Gaith. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.